I'm uh, Matthew Venn, and um, the course is called Zero to ASIC. And uh, you're Aria. So Thanks. you're also um, making an application, or have made an application. It's all very close to the end now, to the, yeah, um, uh, the Skywater Google eFabulous shuttle. And um, one of the reasons why I was interested to talk to you about it, because I know your project's about um, an open source FPGA, right? Yes. So maybe you could um, just give us a little bit of information about what your project's about, why you decided to get involved in that. Okay. Uh, well, our project is actually a class project for a course at UC Berkeley. Um, and sort of the course mandate is pretty broad. We just have to look at VLSI design and come up with a big project that's worth taping out. Um, and it was in both my advisor, who was the professor of this course, John Warshnick, and my research interests to look at FPGAs. And so at the beginning of the uh, semester, we proposed to the entire class of about 15 people that we all build different parts of this FPGA and bring it together into one full fabric uh, using Skywater, which is now entirely open source. It seemed pretty exciting because it was very accessible. Uh, and so there are, so there's, there's two things. One, like there, there aren't that many open source FPGA implementations. There are now, there's a lot of effort into generatable FPGA fabrics from Verilog, the likes of uh, open FPGA and the Princeton reconfigurable array. Um, and they solve a very uh, good problem. I mean, they, solve a, they have a very nice purpose, which is to enable architecture researchers to sort of explore the FPGA design space rapidly. Um, but there's still like a dearth of exper experience, exper expertise and knowledge in building the fabrics themselves. So most students, for example, who go through university will will maybe use an FPGA in one course, but they won't know how it's put together. They won't understand fundamentally what the chip is and what it's made of. Um, and so in that way, it's a bit different to all the other projects that have been done recently, which is just like RISC-V cores. I mean, a lot of the other courses we do are RISC-V cores or like DSPs, uh, AI, ML accelerators of some kind, because uh, it's fashionable. Um, and those are all great, but we thought maybe it's time to look at FPGAs again, because you know, with the end of Moore's law, everyone keeps talking about it being dead and the end of denied scaling, there isn't, uh, sorry, there's sort of like a renewed interest in accessible accelerators. And we think that they'll probably have a second time in the sun as a result, but to get there, people need to know more about them. So, yeah. so like um, have your RISC-V core and then a little bit of FPGA fabric on the side to accelerate whatever that microcontroller exactly. is doing at that moment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any um, pictures of your FPGA fabric that you can screen share? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, one of them works, I think. I think I have the last camera as well. Let's have a look. I mean, like, um, we don't need to show um, GDS, but um, oh, like uh, the the schematic of your logic title. Um, you do? Is it like? Yeah, you, we like, have. We honest, have the any... I can show you the GDS if that's easier. Yeah, well, both. Yeah. Okay, so first, the only um, logic tiles that I'm really familiar with is the ICE forty ones that have um, a four input marks. Um, a flip-flop, some carry logic, 
Oh, okay. So we don't, I can show you the documentation. We don't have the uh, sort of polished documentation really, but we have what every team has done. And I can describe the structure to you. Um, it's a very vanilla FPGA. It's, it's like you, you read a textbook on an FPGA. This is pretty much the first thing you'll come up with. Um, and that was on purpose. Uh, but there are a lot of ways you can do interesting things within it. So here we go. I have this. Okay, so this is just the, the documentation on the Caraval repo that we have. Um, okay, so the way we organized the, the, the design was bottom up. We got one team to work on the configurable logic blocks, which has the LUTs in it. Uh, another team to work on an SRAM tile and another team to work on a, a multiply accumulate unit for a faster arithmetic. Um, and so I can just go through this from the bottom up. Uh, first of all, well, maybe you want to see the top level first. It sort of looks like, where do we go? Here, this. Can you see this? Okay, so yeah, you have, it's the, uh, it's called like island style because uh, you have this like regular repeating pattern of um, logic blocks and the, the switch boxes and connection boxes that connect them all together. And the, the grid just goes on forever. It's like a big sea of tiles. Um, and so in this sense, it's not very optimized uh, for connectivity because if you look at like a modern like Xilinx chip, for example, there are these big thick wire full channels between these tiles that run different spans horizontally and vertically. And we kind of do away with that for simplicity. Uh, every tile is basically just connected to its neighbor. Um, and so to get from one tile to one, a couple over, you have to connect through the neighbor's switch boxes. And so that's slow, but for our purposes, it's fine. Um, but yeah, this is basically it. There's, there's the logic blocks, switch boxes and connection boxes. The memory and the multiply accumulate units have larger versions of these, which are distinct as a result. And otherwise it's only this many structures that just get repeated. Um, so a question about the um, target to ASIC flow then. So did you um, harden each of these little blocks and then place them? We tried everything because uh, initially the <laughs> tools had a lot of problems um, synthesizing dense cells that were very large. Well, dense tiles that had a lot, a lot of cells in them and they're very large. So for example, I started with this multiply accumulate unit and I could not get uh, the tools to achieve density or even work without um, splitting everything up into its own little tile and then hardening that individually. Uh, but then as time went on, the tools improved a little bit and we kind of understood how to avoid the uh, constant nagging of like density value too low and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we ended up being able to synthesize, for example, a whole CLB tile out of the CLB block here and the two connection boxes and a switch box into one hardened macro. And so then that became the sort of the final building block. Um, okay, and then you were able to um, duplicate those in a regular pattern. Yeah, and that's what I'll show you in the next shot. Uh, interestingly, <laughs> uh, our, yeah, that'd be great. our multiply accumulate unit, when we first built it, was is too big. And so it didn't really fit on our uh, How many bits wide is the multiply? It was uh, 32 bits by 32 bits. And then because it's an accumulate, okay. the output size was doubled 
on, well, it's four times that because you need double the width just to get a product. And then, then we have four times that for like a mm -hmm. successive accumulation of those products. Um, and that was okay. huge. That was, would have been about a quarter of the size of the Caravolt die that we had, like the user space we get. So we wow. were like, okay, maybe that won't fit. So in the interest of like uh, getting this into the deadline, we kind of just dropped it from the submission to tape out. But um, the plan is now that we understand things better to make it much smaller, to make the operands you know, half the size and the output 25% narrower. Um, and I think with what we know now, we can probably fit that in. Uh, likewise, the SRAM, we were waiting on OpenRAM, the compiler to uh, be released. And I had to look at some of the pre-release stuff they were doing, but there were always like a few little niggly things that made it not quite ready. And so we had to drop that as well because uh, we needed, you know, a specific kind of um, port configuration, for example, a one bit wide read write instead of like the usual eight bit uh, because the output could be coming from a one lot, for example. Um, and uh, anyway, long story short, we just had to drop that too. Uh, but once open RAM is ready, our control logic is ready and we can put that into and we, we think size wise that will easily fit. So um, what you're about to see is only these CLB tiles that are hardened as one single block. Okay. So each one of these square, big squares is, is that set of um, four blocks, is it? Yes. So this is a configurable logic block, which is um, the LUTs that you mentioned earlier and some switch boxes. Uh, well, one switch box, which connects it to its neighbor and then two connection boxes. Hmm. Can you zoom in on that for us? You can't really tell the structure by looking at it though. Uh, it's clearly like a massive, highly interconnected area, which I suspect is the switch box. Um, yeah. And then, so the, I suppose I thought I was expecting to see something much more regular because well, see, this is an interesting FPGA thing. FPGA fabric is, yeah. is so regular. This is a very interesting thing. Um, and this is actually my personal research direction. I think that synthesizing FPGAs like this is good because it's easy and it makes it accessible. Um, but I think it leaves a lot of performance on the table because at the end of the day, you're just trying to like put these standard cells and arrange them as best as you can. Um, and you're not going to use all the amount, like all the available space. You're going to have too many extra. Yeah, because I was wondering whether you were going to, whether you were going to show me like a, a new standard cell that was uh, a logic slice, basically. Oh, that is that is the plan. That is my personal plan. I have like three months okay. to do that. Now. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> that, that is, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? And that's what the big FPGA companies will do. Um, the, I think the, the biggest blocker has been finding the right tooling to do it with because you can write your own thing that will write GDS or write a LIF or whatever. And then what happens when you need to port that to a different process? You have to write the whole thing again or you have to like try and yourself take care of all the different process DRC constraints and so on. So I was thinking of using BAG, but uh, I've been waiting for that to be ready and it now is. So yeah, no, that's a great idea. I'm, I'm going to do it. But we, we don't have that for you today. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, this is what, so for example, open FPGA, they have the same idea, um, but they've gone and added custom cells. They've added like a custom, like a mux or a, a, a latch. I think they called it a flip flop, but it was a latch, um, for storage within the LUTs. And just by adding two small custom standard cells, which get rid of like 
unnecessary buffering uh, because you know the inputs and outputs, then they, I think they got like an almost two X improvement in performance. Um, in terms of speed or size? Uh, in terms of speed. So, I mean, the whole thing was a lot smaller and the delays were much lower and it came very close to commercially competitive in the sense like it could compete with like a, an equivalent commercial chip. Um, so that, I mean, it shows you that it's really promising to take that, to take that path and try and do everything sort of half manually, like to, to write a, a layout generator, but, um, there are too many. So it would be a, a little bit like Open RAM, but for NFP. Yeah, exactly. It would be a, com a compiler like Open RAM, um, or maybe actually just a straight generator, because Open RAM will assemble existing SRAM tiles, and then put the configure the decode logic in. But I don't know if we'd do it that way. Okay. Um, no. So. So what are you hoping to learn from this experiment? Then? I mean, principally, the the point of the class is to teach uh, our grad students how to how VLSI design works at a more practical level than all the sort of first, like the low level academic stuff you learn in like one course and then move on. Um, so, you know, like what the power grid does and why you need tab cells and stuff that's pretty basic, but also how do you then go from start to finish? Like they had to build the RTL for these blocks, make the test benches, um, get the functional simulation, the, the gate level simulation, the end-to-end -end simulation with Caraval and they have to think about how they trade performance um, with cost in terms of area, you know, when they're like, for example, deciding on how to do uh, decoding for the SRAMs because an FPGA SRAM, like a memory tile, should be configurable by the user as, you know, like a 32 by eight or a 64 by four or something. Um, and like, how do you build that? Uh, and so it's just a big design exercise. It's there's nothing really researchy about this or new. Um, I think I think the most interesting thing is that it's done in this open source flow. Uh, and I think being one of the first classes to do it made it difficult, but uh, because the community was so active and engaged, I think it went a, a lot more smoothly than we thought. Um, and so on what you were saying earlier, um, you're, you're wanting to make a course. We, I mean, I will spend probably two weeks from next week, turning what we did into a lab manual so that other persons such as yourself or universities can take it and work with it. Um, but I mean, the audience of that would be probably university students. Uh, and I think the emphasis would be on teaching people what the different parts of the tool flow are and how and why they sort of work. Um, because we have another, I mean, the earlier, the, the class you take prior to this one, you have to build a RISC-V core, but we give the students the entire ASIC tool flow and we just say, okay, run, make, and it'll work. Um, actually, it uses Berkeley's Hammer project. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, the, the whole point of that is to abstract that problem away and make it so that you have to worry about the digital design and not the ASIC tool flow. But then when you come to this course, you have to learn about what the tool flow actually is and why. Yeah. That makes sense. A little bit more under the hood. Yeah. Because like, I mean, you go, you can join it. I mean, the thing is normally you do like the first course and you'd go to industry and you get a job doing this and they would teach you how their tool flow works and you'd be fine. Um, but for a lot of people that isn't very satisfying. So uh, we've had a lot of, I think 
engage students more so than normal because it's, it's really fun to be able to do this and uh, to kind of know why it works. And, yeah, and do you think um, actually taping something out is gives that like a bit of extra excitement as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we definitely dangled it like a carrot. To be honest, we like in all realism, we didn't think we'd make it because everything about this was unknown and we didn't have that long mm. and it, we are in the middle of a global pandemic and so on. Um, so <laughs> why make it easy? Yeah. Why make it easy? So we were like, okay, we're going to aim for this, but we don't really like at, when we started, we did we had no idea what the end result would need to look like to fit onto Caravel. Um, and then I think four weeks ago they released the, the sort of harness and the pre-check tool. And so finally we realized, and so I started just like, bashing what we had until it fit. Um, but yeah, I, I think a lot of the students really engage with that. They really got excited by being able to have a real chip at the end of it, being able to look at it. I mean, I personally would, so mm. I think it's awesome. And what do you, what do you think about, um, uh, like the possibilities for this kind of shuttle program in the future because you're like in the academic world i uh yeah i am well uh so before i came to grad school i actually worked as a software engineer and uh i think in my experience there well i mean so i worked at google with actually tim ansel and i think what he's doing is a great example of what will happen um when he's successful right and this stuff becomes a bit more democratized and that there's a lot of technically minded people who uh, want, need, or could use sort of these sort of accelerated digital logic devices for whatever purpose they have. And they often avoid it because it's just too hard. It's sort of like this arcane knowledge that is like hard won and that you have to fight for when you win it. Um, am I still sharing? No, I turned it off so that I'd be able to see your face. Oh, you broke my Zoom, which is normal. Let's oh. just another day. Um, it is normal. Anyway, uh, what's the question? What do I think? Yeah, no, I think like there are a lot of like tinkerers. Like, okay, at one level, there's tinkerers, right? There's hobbyists, enthusiasts who, who um, like my younger self, would really have loved to just build a chip because they could get it to do something cool. Um, but then at a higher level, like if you as you go up the sort of experience deck, there are and I guess the stakes stack, there are people, there are companies who have real business needs for sort of accelerated logic and uh, they can't afford to build a chip. And so they'll usually go- well, Why not, why, why would you, I mean, how would you explain to somebody why they should build a chip instead of using a GPU or an existing FPGA? So GPUs are exceptionally good at their very specific job, which is, massively parallel, basically arithmetic. Um, and that is great. And if you I think if you can use a GPU, you, you should, because you're not going to build a chip that does GPU better than GPU, right? Unless you join NVIDIA. Um, so I think, I think as a computer architect, the interesting hole that's left is sort of the, the class of stuff that, or the classes of stuff that are, not trivially acceleratable with, you know, like a vector core and a normal a general purpose computer or a, a GPU, um, but that are nonetheless 
uh, important. And it could mean that, I mean, you could, you could want one of the, you could want a chip, not just because of performance, right? You might want it to be low power. You might want something that runs on like very little battery for a very long time. Um, and just kind of, you know, sits in the corner of your garage, I don't know, or in your warehouse. Um, or you may want, um, like you may have an algorithm that you haven't, you can't parallelize. Uh, and so you um, implement it as a circuit to try and ECAP performance. And then you can, you, you would normally put it on an FPGA and you kind of be wasting FPGA resources and you'd have this like $200 thing that sits in the corner um, plus just for the chip. Uh, but now, now you have the option of, um, if it's justified building a, a special purpose chip for it, which will have lower power and probably better performance. Um, and we can clearly see that Google are interested in this given that they're sponsoring. Yeah. Companies. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to speak from my experience there, but companies like Google, uh, have a lot of need for compute in ways that they like, they need more performance basically where they can't just rely on general purpose compute scaling. Um, and like if, if you think of Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft and Google and all the, all these people with like huge data centers with like very, I think diverse workloads in some sense, but in others very re repetitive. Like there are, uh, like you imagine something that a, a data center has to do all the time for every application is like handle communication, right? It has to handle network, network traffic. Um, and that isn't like a static thing and that changes all the time. And so it's nice to be able to accelerate that somehow um, without having to wait for just faster, you know, like Intel or AMD chips. Uh, but now I'm just speculating wildly. I think, I think, I think like, I mean, at 130 nanometer, the sort of scope of this is limited to hobbyists, but, um, oh, and like low power applications and like low cost commercial devices. But the, the exciting thing about open lane is that when you have this tool flow and when you have, um, companies that are willing to invest in this tool flow, then you start to get what happened with, you know, Linux in the, in the nineties where, yeah, I think that's, that's where my excitement comes from is yeah. there's just kind of, it's the unknowable nature of the future once you start putting this in everybody's hands and the, the tools have historically been so expensive and access to actually getting your chip made has been so expensive that we've missed out on perhaps a lot of unexpected, yeah. strange experimentation yeah, exactly. and i mean back to the fpgas i think they've kind of been kind of fell out of favor for like a few decades because cpus were going gangbusters right they were getting 30 40 50 percent faster a year um and so who cares about fpgas basically no one really did for a long time i mean there were always niche applications but uh no one was really talking about them beyond that um and now suddenly because cpus kind of grow five to ten percent faster a year people talk about, oh, how can we accelerate things? And so, um, okay, the analogy is this, you know, like researchers haven't been able to just get their own FPGAs made or kind of designed to play on unless they had tremendous resources, which kind of locked out most of the research community. Uh, likewise, 
hobbyists and the open source community haven't been able to tinker with them and innovate in the way that they do. Um, and so the, like the hope is like, if you make, like if you have like an open source fabric like this or something that people can just take and use and then improve on iteratively, uh, then you'll start to get those sorts of like uh, refinements that eventually lead to something that is very useful for a lot of people like Linux. Um, and we've just, and I mean, we've just seen that with Yotis and iStorm and the, yeah, exactly. the availability of open source. Yeah, so just to, just to bring this background then um, and to finish the conversation, um, do you have a plan for um, uh, like a tool chain for synthesis for your custom FPGA? Are you going to use Yosis? Uh, yeah, we actually do. Um, one of our teams worked on this one guy, Tan, who's my, <laughs> he's my, uh, he's my buddy. Um, we are developing the tool chain to target this fabric in Yosis and NextPNR. Awesome. So Yosis is the synthesis tool that uses uh, Berkeley's ABC tool and NextPNR does place and route. Um, a popular alternative would be VTR from University of Toronto. Uh, but um, for our simple design, we wanted to avoid XML. <laughs> so that we went with NextPNR. <laughs> um, yeah, and then so the idea was, uh, and I mean, still is like we can generate a bitstream for this. Uh, we can't really completely map designs yet. I think there are some holes in the process, but um, currently we generate a bitstream and we like load it manually and we see if things work. But uh, with and you're doing all that in simulation. Yeah. Um, yes. But uh, the original plan and the thing we're halfway through doing is being able to you know synthesize circuits to the FPGA. The problem was uh, when we first laid this out. And the last thing you need to do is um, run <laughs> Yosis and XPNR on the Pico RP32 inside Caravel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we... <laughs> yeah, no, we're not gonna. You might not have quite enough RAM. How much do you have? Two K. Uh, yeah, if that. Um, yeah. Uh, what was I saying? Yeah, I. I think that's very interesting stuff and it like has it feeds into all of our like our research work on the side which is nice um but yeah it became just like too complicated to try and get open lane to work and all the tooling to work at the same time and oh that's the thing i was gonna say i remember when we first when i first tried to put this down i could only fit 12 tiles in because there were like power rings in the wrong place and there were halos in the wrong place and we couldn't get density above you know like 30 percent um and so with 12 tiles, it's like, you're not going to map anything. Like it's, it's kind of, it's kind of stupid. Um, at that point it was barely worth actually submitting because we weren't going to use it. Um, but after like some last minute magic, uh, no pun intended, we managed to like get the density right up and squeeze them together. So there's like 56 tiles now, which is usable. Um, cool. And, ah, uh, so each tile has four LUTs and, Comparing to your ICE 40 example, these are, these are actually uh, S4. Okay, so you've got 50 tiles in four LUTs in yeah. each one. And they're... So you've got 200 LUTs in the whole... Fabric. Yeah, and they're uh, four four LUTs. So S44 is this... Um, okay. So it's two four LUTs stuck together, so it, it basically can do almost as well as a six LUT. So there's four of those, four of those pairs. Yeah, which is really powerful. So. Well, thanks so much for your time, Aria. It's been really cool talking to you about your project. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Um, um, 
and um, I look forward to seeing you actually uh, running a synthesized design on your own FPGA. Oh, me too. <laughs> or you and your team. Thanks. Nice to meet you too. Great. Right? Okay.